Bibles, you may take them out and turn to the book of Philippians. We're only going to be reading a couple of verses, which are, unsurprisingly, verses 1 and 2. We're going to be doing some introductory stuff today, so we won't be uh, referencing them too heavily. But it's good to just get a little bit of the context as we open up this super awesome uh, New Testament book. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, I saw a little YouTube video of two men having a conversation. Uh, one man called himself a pastor. And the other man was explaining his personal struggles with guilt. This second man who had guilt, he had grown up in the church for almost his whole life. Uh, but eventually, he determined that he was homosexual. And he decided to leave his church. And he began to have a relationship with another man. He assumed, as he had been told by people around him, that this would bring him happiness and fulfillment. But what he found instead was that he lived life very, very guilty and feeling very ashamed. Um, and he believed that a lot of this was because he grew up in the church and he knew that the church he grew up in uh, disagreed with his new life decisions. And so that led him to start uh, questioning pretty frequently uh, whether he had done the right thing or not. So the pastor, talking to this man, asked him a question. He said, well, have you ever heard of an affirming church? Um, an affirming church is a church that um, says that if a man and a man or a woman and a woman uh, get married, then as long as they're married, that's not sinful. And they affirm that that relationship is not wrong. So this pastor was suggesting that there are churches out there that will help you continue to be a Christian, and they will help you not feel ashamed of this particular lifestyle. But the man with guilt responded to that pastor. He said, you know, I considered that, but I didn't want to just go to a church that would tell me what I wanted to hear. Now, we might think that is a pretty good response. Uh, but the pastor actually said this to him instead, quote, too many people believe that just because something makes us feel hurt or ashamed or criticized, then it must be the truth. But real truth doesn't hurt us. Real truth only heals us. Real truth doesn't hurt us. Real truth only heals us. If you went through that question in your brain, what would be your response to that? Is that how you would respond to someone you were talking to who felt either guilty or ashamed of a particular lifestyle? There's something very fascinating in that pastor's response in this conversation because there's a brutal irony that's taking place in that conversation. On one hand, the pastor is getting at something that's true. 
some upsetting and unfortunate trend amongst a lot of people, whether they're Christians or not. And that trend is that being an authentic Christian means living a sad, guilt-ridden, shame-filled life where all of your desires are wrong. These people would say that uh, real Christianity means that you only become mature when you feel very painful convictions or very spiritually painful wake-up calls. These people would say that when you feel the weight of sin, it means the rest of your life you are constantly struggling uphill. You will never feel confident or assured that you're actually a Christian. And this pastor is right in affirming that that is not an accurate picture of the Christian life. All truth doesn't just beat you down and force you into a corner. But the response that this pastor is having, the solution to that problem, is also completely off. What's wrong about his solution is that if we see sin and shame, the response should just be to ignore it and to live by any desire that we have, as if that is what truly pleases God. And that other side would say that authentic faith is living by your own preferences because the ultimate value in God's mind is you being happy. And if you are happy, that is true worship, whatever you find happiness in. We have two very different forms, two very different kinds of supposed Christians. One saying that you need to bring the weight of sin with you. And the other side saying that you leave the weight of sin at the door. One side is saying God only honors people who hate themselves. And the other side says God only honors those who are in love with themselves. And the question is, which one is it? Which one's the truth? Or you could ask yourself, which one is closer to the truth? If I were to put myself on a scale between those two answers, where would I lean more towards? And the reality is that that's actually a very hard way to think about it because both of those views have something completely wrong with them. And what both of those views have completely wrong is that Christians don't live for themselves at all. It's by removing ourselves from the center of our own lives where the key to true life really is. The guilt-ridden man is supposed to see his guilt, but then he's not supposed to keep looking at his own guilt, but instead look to Jesus and look at the freedom that Jesus gives, both from the punishment of sin and from the power of sin that he would be released from practicing and from understanding the punishment. He's supposed to look at Jesus, and the other man's supposed to do the same as he looks at his own pleasures and desires, and as he looks at what he's running after. He's then supposed to look at Jesus and compare the glory that is in Christ with the things that he's running after, and allow this pursuit towards Christ to reshape all of the other things that he's been running after. Both of these people become free when they turn away from themselves and they turn to Christ. And what happens when that takes place is that you get to walk every single day with joy, with a supernatural kind of joy. 
And this year, as we go through the book of Philippians, I'm hoping that is one of the biggest things that you take out of the study we're about to go on. Because in this letter, Paul, who's the author of this letter, is overflowing in joy like no other letter. And as we begin to look at this book this year, I want to start today by giving you four reasons why Paul is so joyful. Four reasons why Paul is so joyful. Because Paul does not want to keep his joy to himself. He is writing to help you understand why you as a Christian should live in that same joy. Of these four reasons, the first two reasons are going to get a lot more time than the other latter two. Um, But let's start now with the first reason. The first reason that Paul is so joyful is because he's confident in Christ. Because Paul is confident in Christ. If you ever read a commentary or a, or a small book maybe on Philippians, like a study guide, um, or if you listen to other pastors preach it, they will emphasize joy in Philippians. But a lot of people will say that Philippians' main theme is joy. And they'll say that because Philippians talks about joy 14 times. The word uh, rejoice or I have joy is in this book. Um, And that does make it very different from other books in the New Testament, even books that Paul wrote, because in other books, Paul is disappointed or corrective or concerned, and that shapes a big reason why he writes a lot of his letters, but that's not what Philippians is like. But it's also not exactly right to say joy is the main theme of Philippians, or that that's the main point of Philippians. It's more like the tone of the letter. It's more like Paul's attitude of the letter. A lot of you guys um, I know are involved in music, so maybe some of you have heard of the term leitmotif before. Raise your hand if you've heard of that term before. If not, that's totally okay. So for those of you who don't know, a leitmotif is basically like a, a pattern that shows up a lot in a, in a movie or in a musical often to tell you something that's happening or to give you a hint of something going on. So for example, I hope this isn't too dated of a reference, but if I go, dun, 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 raise your hand if you recognize that. Awesome. So let's say you're watching, that's from Star Wars, for those of you who don't know. Let's say you're watching Star Wars and all of the heroes are like hanging out and they're like, oh, I hope nothing's gonna go wrong. And you hear, dun, 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 dun. Like you know something bad's gonna happen because the, the melody I'm playing is the imperial theme, which is like the bad guy's theme. And so that's like a better way to think about joy in Philippians. It's not necessarily the subject that's happening, but it's a melody that's playing through. And the reason behind that melody, that's really the center of Philippians. And the center of Philippians, the reason for Paul's joy is very simple. It's because he's talking so much about Jesus. You see, even though joy shows up 14 times in Philippians, Jesus is mentioned by name 48 times. And if you include the pronouns, every time they say he or him, it's almost 70 times. And if you look at the opening two verses, in those two verses, he says Jesus three times. Jesus is the point of Philippians because it's only through Jesus that someone receives life and purpose and joy. And when you receive all of those things, you want to talk about Jesus. 
And as he says in the inscription, this is a book for people who want to understand the grace and peace that can only be found in him. And they want to get even deeper into that. And maybe the best reason to describe why Paul is so joyful is in the word confidence. Paul has confidence in Christ, and therefore his joy is a confident, sure, stable, assured kind of joy. And that really matters because Paul is talking to all Christians, but he's also writing to a very specific group of Christians that lived in a city called Philippi. That's where Philippians gets its name. And Philippi was a city that was very, very happy with their place in the world. You could say they were a very cocky kind of city. Um, I know people who go to other cities to go and watch sports games because they like seeing their team play another team in another arena. And some of these friends, they won't go to certain arenas to see certain teams play because they don't like the fans. They just don't want to be engaged and surrounded by people like yelling and shouting. Sometimes they're even scared because if you wear a different jersey, they're like worried you're going to be attacked. Philippi is kind of like that city. They're very happy and very proud of where they're from. And all of their history kind of points to that. Philippi is close to Philip because it was named after a guy named Philip. And Philip was a Greek emperor, basically. He was a Greek king, and his son was Alexander the Great. So Philip was a very famous person, and when he conquered this city, um, he was so confident in himself that he named it after himself. And nothing really happens of note with this city for like 300 years until much later, uh, Caesar Augustus Octavian, one of the most famous Roman emperors ever, won one of his most important battles in this city with another guy named Mark Antony, and they beat two guys who were the last guys in the way of Octavian basically being the king of the known civilized world at the time. So Philippi was a very famous city and very loved in Rome, which is interesting because Philippi is not even in Rome, technically. It's actually in northern uh, Greece. But the reason that it feels Roman is because it was a colony. The passage we read last week, Acts chapter 16 and verse 12, Luke, who writes Acts, he says that it was a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, which meant that Philippi and all the people in Philippi got all the rights and privileges of Roman citizens, which meant this was like prime real estate. This was a great place to live. And it had a lot of benefits with that. Caesar, Octavian, he loved it so much that he actually sent a lot of retired Roman soldiers there. Uh, which meant it was really safe. It was almost like the vacation uh, place, and it's like cops hanging around all the time. It also had a lot of statues and temples, just like they had in Rome. They had Egyptian gods and Greek gods and, of course, Roman gods, and heroes like Philip and Augustus both had statues, and that wasn't for no reason. It wasn't just to symbolize or represent or honor those people. It was like their way of being spiritually safe against all of these supposed cosmic forces that were out there in the world that you needed to please. And I don't say all of that stuff just because this is an introduction to Philippians and we've got to talk about history. I'm not saying it for that reason. I don't want to just give you facts. There's a very important reason why it's helpful to know all of those things. Because it paints a picture of a city that is so confident 
in their place in the world and in all of the things of this world. They felt stable. They felt assured. And that could easily rub off on the Christians that live in Philippi. And that's very, very similar to our world today. We live in a world based on where we are and the technology that surrounds us and the privileges that we get to live in. We can feel so comfortable in this world that not only do we not even think about God or honor God, but we feel like it doesn't even make sense to believe a God exists. And this is something that it's only in the last 200 years has become normal because of all the benefits that we have. And if that is the case, it can feel less and less rational or less and less worth being a Christian. And Philippians helps turn the tables on that kind of thinking by saying it is good to be a Christian. And in fact, you should be confident, more confident than anyone else on earth that being a Christian is absolutely the right way to live. And he does that in a lot of different ways. So for example, Paul wants you to be confident in Christ because of the doctrine of Christ. That's one example. He says that there are so many reasons why it makes sense to be a Christian. The word confidence actually talks about this idea of being persuaded or being won over to a certain kind of argument. It shows up in the book of Acts a lot where you hear stories of people listening and learning and then becoming convinced and persuaded by the gospel. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Because belief in Christ is based off of a verified historical account. We have reasons to know Jesus was real. He really lived, he really died, and he really rose again. And then even beyond that, getting on a personal level, the intellectual argument of the gospel is not only understandable and translatable, it's rational. It looks at the world the way it really is, and it looks at us the way we really are, and it provides a solution for the problems and the brokenness that we see. The gospel makes sense. And Paul wants to say in the book of Philippians in so many passionate ways that other ways to live don't truly make sense when you actually look at Christ and see the truth that is in him. But our confidence even goes beyond that. It's not just the doctrine of Christ that should make us confident in Christ, but even the mission of Christ. The Bible is really honest that being a Christian is not easy. It's not just simple. And honestly, if you talk to a lot of people, many people's chief argument for not being a Christian is because it seems difficult or uncomfortable. And that's really as deep as the argument goes. They understand that we believe certain things that the world will look at us and they will say we are disagreeable, we are anti-culture, we are against pleasure, and we are against happiness. And they will look at that and say, it makes, it makes no sense to be a Christian. So I should avoid it and reject it at all costs. Some people even say, maybe I should attack it. But the reality is, that Paul is telling us in Philippians is that Christ is true and his message is love. It doesn't make sense to be against the mission that he is proclaiming. But even beyond that, when you look at the plan and how sure it is that it will come to fruition, that God's sovereign purposes won't be stopped, you should be confident in Christ's mission. 
Next week, we're going to look at the first couple of verses of Philippians. And Paul says right at the beginning in Philippians 1, 6, that he is sure of something. And that word sure is the word confidence. I am confident in this, that Jesus, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Christians know God is doing something in them, through them, and beyond them throughout all sorts of places in the world with all sorts of different people in the world. And those purposes are righteous, and the motivations behind them are perfect, and the outcome is promised. People will be saved, and they're going to be saved into the only plan and the only purpose of life that's actually worth living but both of those things, both the doctrine of Christ and the mission of Christ, they really only make sense and they'll really only be accepted by anyone if they're confident in the love of Christ. And the love of Christ is also something that Paul doubles down on throughout this entire letter, that living as a confident Christian doesn't mean you handle everything on your own. It turns out confidence is really dependence. It's dependence on Christ, knowing that if you do a trust fall, he's going to catch you every time, that he's going to forgive you no matter what. And that confidence comes through only one thing, through looking at the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, chapter 3, verse 8, from knowing that Christ has made us his own, chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have made Christ my own, but that Christ has made me his own. Confidence isn't just about doing more for God. It's about resting in the knowledge that our citizenship in heaven was bought by Christ. Chapter 3, verse 20. It's confidence knowing that even as I try to do things for God, God's ultimate means of my growth is him doing things in me. Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. And because of all of those things, Paul wants to scream in this letter, we should be joyful because we are confident that we can depend on Christ. That is the first reason that Paul is joyful in the book of Philippians. And the second one follows naturally from this. And the second reason is because Paul has partners in Christ. Paul is joyful because he has partners in Christ. We all know that Paul loved Christ. We know that he was spending his life for the gospel. And we also know that life got really hard for him. There are lots of stories in Acts, and he explains in New Testament letters that he had a very difficult time trying to share the gospel throughout the world. And Philippians is no exception. At this point, he was in a prison cell. People debate where he was, but most likely he was in Rome. And while he was in prison, which was bad enough, he also found out that there were certain people who called themselves Christians who were actually psyched that Paul was in prison. They were very happy that he was in prison because they didn't like Paul. So Paul was both suffering and people were shaming him. And the reality is that it wasn't just his joy in Christ uh, that helped him in the situation. It was that the mission of Christ wasn't dependent on him. He says in chapter 1 verse 18 that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. He was happy that this whole plan of the gospel going throughout the world didn't end with him being in prison because God had provided other people to share that gospel 
And not only other people out there in the world, but people that Paul could truly consider his friends. Paul calls them in in chapter 1, partners. Chapter 1, verse 5, he says he has joy because they've partnered in the gospel from the first day until now. God shared the gospel with people in Philippi. They became Christians, and immediately after, they became deeply committed to spend their lives to support him. These people, from day one, prayed for him. They proclaimed the gospel and suffered because they saw his example. And Paul loved them for that. And he also loved them because they didn't just love his mission, they loved him. It was a powerful love. This church wasn't just joyful about the gospel and Christ. They were joyful that they got to partner with Paul in the gospel. Which makes Philippi one of the most faithful churches in the entire Bible. And that's not an accident that their commitment and their joy is obvious. Paul even mentions them actually later in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 when he explains that they supported Paul with a wealth of generosity. That in a severe test of affliction and in their extreme poverty, they gave according to their means and beyond their means. This was a poor church that gave Paul what he needed because they loved him and more importantly, because they loved Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul knows why. It's because they had an abundance of joy. They were actually so joyful that it was almost weird because Paul explains in that section that he never had to beg them for support. They actually begged him to support him. I was thinking about this, and some of you could maybe track with this with our Alaska trip that we just went on. You know, remember back to that time when you were raising funds, and it was a good chunk of change, you know, to to go on that trip. And you have to pray for the funds to come and pray that God will provide people to support you. Just imagine, like, you're on your knees praying um, for financial support, and someone just, like, bursts through your door and just, like, falls on their face in front of you, and they're like, please, can I give you money? Can I please give you money? Please let me do it. Please. Please let me give you money. It'd almost be weird. But that was what the church of Philippi was like. And that's exactly the way he described them. And that's not just because Paul was the super amazing guy. It was because Paul wanted to show us, through their example, that that's what the gospel does to people. The gospel radically transforms the kind of love that people have for one another and the love they have for Christ so that their lives would be spent for the gospel. Philippians is going to show you that gospel living together is a great privilege, and it's an absolute promise. Actually, verses 1 to 2 have a lot of hints that this is going to be a big thing that Philippians gets into. You can see that, actually, in what's not seen. So what I mean is, in a lot of the introductions, Paul usually says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus, because he needs to defend the fact that he is an authority on behalf of Christ. But in Philippians, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say he's an apostle, and it's because he's thinking as a friend. He doesn't need to bring his authority into this book. He brings instead his affection and his mutual love as fellow Christians who love the gospel. But there's obvious hints too. He brings Timothy's name into it. He says, Paul and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus. And that's not necessarily because Timothy helped write this letter. It's because Timothy's another friend. There's a lot of hints in Acts that He loved this church, and this church loved Timothy. 
And so he wants to bring more people into equation to remind each other that there are so many people here who love one another and desire each other's progress and faith in the gospel. And the other hint that you have is that he doesn't just address this to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, but also the overseers and the deacons. It's one of the only books in the New Testament where those offices are mentioned in the inscription. Specifically, deacons is a very unique one. These are the authorities in a church. And the reason he brings that in is because the entire culture is shaped, and he desires to be shaped more and more by this love for the gospel at the core of this church. He's seen that, and he wants that to be even more so. Every hint, even in the first two verses, is that this is a letter about passionate partnership for the gospel. And that if you want joy in Christ, you got to live for the gospel with other Christians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he says later, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. God has never saved you in a vacuum. God wants to use you to bring others to Christ, and he wants you to help others understand the gospel with others in Christ. And the joy that that brings about in a Christian is amazing. And that actually leads to the other two reasons that Paul has joy, and they're very closely related. Uh, The third reason that Paul has joy is because we can grow in Christ. Paul isn't just thinking about himself now. He's thinking about being a teacher. And he's thinking about the Philippians and that they're in Philippi and that being a Christian will feel difficult, especially because you feel like you got to be a representative of Christ. And if you read about Christ and you look at yourself, we don't look very much like Christ a lot. And wanting to change is very difficult. And it's especially difficult, I've found, When you read those places, especially in the New Testament, where there's a list of ways to grow, and you're like, wow, I suck at all of these. Like, look, I'm gentle. No, I'm not gentle. Uh, uh, Gracious. No, not gracious. Uh, Good giver. Nope, not good at that. Uh, Never bad speech. No, I only talk bad. All my words. And you just go through that list, and you're like, how on earth am I possibly going to change with all of these things? Uh, Philippians is a very interesting book because... There aren't necessarily a ton of different things that he's trying to talk about in terms of ways for you to grow. In fact, you could argue that there's really one way that he pounds away at. There's a goal that's bringing this about. His goal is that this group would be more and more unified and that it would be close as a family because even though Philippi is an amazing church, there seems to be some beef between a couple of people. So as Paul thinks about the goal of unity, he thinks about what's the most important character quality that people need in Christ so that they could be of one mind. And that character quality is humility. Humility. Paul pounds away at this idea that Christians must grow in humility. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, Paul says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love and being of full accord and of one mind. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Observe and fulfill the needs of others instead of fulfilling the needs of ourselves. That's a radical idea. And it's radical even though when you go into the world, many non-Christians will say that humility is a good thing. But the problem is the world will not show you very many good examples of humility. If you look, just notice when you see someone talk about good things that they have done, just look at how obvious some of those motivations are. Most people, in an attempt to be humble, will put up all of their good works and they will put them there on a table and they will say, please respect me, please honor me, please let me be the example of what it means to be a good person. That is so much of what's called humility in the world. Humility in Christ is radically different because humility in Christ never points at us. It points to Christ. And as I'm saying all this stuff, you might ask the question, well, that sounds really hard. Why is that a reason to be joyful? And the reason it's so joyful is because as you look at Christ, you see the most beautiful picture of a person because of his humility. And you see that looking at him, humility in you is actually possible. You can actually look like Christ, but it starts with being overwhelmed at the joy of looking at who Christ is. And that's how you get to passages like Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, which many people say is one of the most amazing pictures of what Christ came to do in the entire Bible. In the entire Bible. And it's all about the beautiful example of Christ's humility and how that's possible for you. That's reason to be joyful. That is a reason to be joyful. And the added reason of, of why that's such a joyful thing is because one of the things Paul gets at in that passage is that when you become humble, it actually accomplishes something. When Christ set aside his divinity, he explains, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, it goes on to say that he accomplished a resurrection, and an enthronement in heaven that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Christ really did that. And he bought it with his humbled death. And as we have the opportunity to put that on, we get to see and witness the things that Christ is doing through us that we get to participate in. And if you're a Christian, that is an exciting thing to rejoice in. And the last thing that makes Paul so joyful goes right along with that. And the fourth reason Paul is joyful is because we've been supplied in Christ. We've been supplied in Christ. Philippians chapter 4 verse 19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is a theme that Paul talks about all the time. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We went through that just about a year and a half ago. And in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says that we are called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And if you're wondering what those things are, Philippians has an exhaustive list 
of all of the things that are considered the riches given to us in Christ. For example, grace and peace, the assurance that we will grow, abounding love, knowledge and discernment, the fruit of righteousness, boldness and courage, freedom from shame, fruitful labor, humility, relief from sorrows, power of his resurrection, the upward call of Christ Jesus, citizenship in heaven, glorious bodies on the last day, our names written in the book of life, access to the Father by prayer, and the peace of God, and contentment in difficult circumstances. And those aren't individual things that you have to go out and find. That's what the world has to do. They have to try and find all of these things in many different things, or they have to find all of those things in one purpose, in one thing, in one person, only to find that all of those solutions fall short. But Christians have the guarantee that all of those things are promised in Jesus Christ. If you have Christ, you have it all. And when you have Christ, you have everything. In kind of summing up the reason that these things are so joyful, um, I was thinking of something today. I was drinking a uh, Sprite. This is Sprite, if you've never seen it before. Visual representation. Uh, I was noticing today when I was drinking it that it had a, a cool new design on it. And I was like, that's very interesting. And so I was just kind of reading around it. And uh, there's a caption on the front of it, it says, celebrating 50 years of hip hop. So just in case you missed the memo, we should all be celebrating 50 years of hip hop, uh, maybe even right now. But it just got me thinking about all of the different things in this world that people wanna celebrate. We did a yearly calendar review at CBC to, with all the ministries to see what we were doing. And one thing I noticed is that Americans have so many holidays, um, a lot more, I think, than Canada. But even when I look at Canadian holidays and American holidays, half of the holidays I've like never heard of. Like Halloween, yes. President's Day, yes. And then there's like multinational something day. It's like, okay, great. And then you look at all the other days that people say, like you'll, you'll go on Facebook one day and someone will be like, happy Bitcoin day. I'm like, I didn't know it was Bitcoin day. Um, just random days and things that people want to celebrate. When you have celebrations, you, you know why you're doing something. It's because we're saying this thing over here has value. When you celebrate someone's birthday, it's because a person has value. When someone has an anniversary, you're celebrating the value of this person's marriage. Another weird way to think about it is when you see people flying certain flags in front of their house. They're saying something's valuable. Maybe it's a pride flag. Maybe it is someone saying proud parents of a graduate of this school. Or maybe people put a country that's at war to show solidarity with that country, that this country should exist, we should stand with them. Or even just an American flag, which is very political now for some reason. If I put a Canadian flag, it's probably more political. Um, <laughs> But the whole point is that all of these things are explaining something. They're explaining things that are worth celebrating. And celebration is when excitement and endorsement start hanging out with each other. They're saying we shouldn't just participate in this thing. We should be passionate about this. We should be joyful about this thing. We should be happy about this thing. 
And my hope as we go through Philippians is that's your attitude towards being a Christian. That it's not just, oh, I should be a Christian or, oh, it makes sense to be a Christian. No, I hope that we can celebrate being a Christian. That it would be something that you are proud to fly the flag of the cross of Christ. That it wouldn't just not be embarrassing. It wouldn't just be right. That it would be the thing you are most excited about. And that you would understand, like Paul does in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because the Christian life is so joyful that even in the face of death, the darkest part of all existence, even then we have a reason to be joyful. Because even in death, it just leads to more of Christ. That's my hope for you as we go through this book.